That's the number one question I get, RJ, from parents is why isn't financial literacy being taught in school? Kids may ask you how much money you make or if you have a mortgage or if you're rich or if you're poor. Like, And again, if you're not doing a good job with this yourself, I think it, it, you know, there's a bit of shame around that too. So there is still a taboo. And then the more money there is, the harder it can be to talk about. So at either ends, if you're struggling, if you have a lot of money, both of those situations, parents find it hard to discuss the situation with their kids. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey folks, it is RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits and you are joining us for another week's episode. So this week we have Robin Taub on the show. Now, Robin is the author of The Wisest Investment, Teaching Your Kids to Be Responsible, Independent, and Money Smart for Life, and an update of the best-selling A Parent's Guide to Raising Money Smart Kids. Now, as a parent of young children, I know that we don't learn how to deal with money in school, right? We don't have practical knowledge when it comes to finances. And I'm not a finance person by any means. And I am looking for all the knowledge and resources I can pull on to help my kids develop better habits with money. So when I found Robin in her work, I knew I had to have her on the show. I know there's other parents probably thinking and worrying about some of the things I am. So Robin is a phenomenal guest, really animated. She's from Toronto, born and raised. After graduating from the University of Toronto with a Bachelor of Commerce, she went to work at the Big Four, one of those one of those accounting firms that we all love, right? So she got her CPA, and look, she's not your typical accountant. She quickly transitioned into real estate, and from there went to the world of complex derivatives and none of it really did it for her and hence the pivot into what she's doing today much more purposeful work so i know for all of you out there that have kids going to have kids or anyone young in your world that you want to help educate about money this show is going to be for you so anyways i hope you enjoy it leave us some feedback give us some reviews keeps us going anyways folks i'm out of here peace Robin, welcome to Ultra Habits. Uh, we are so happy to have you on the show. Connected with you some time ago. I was on holiday, so it's taken a little bit of time to make this happen, but I'm so grateful that you're joining us this morning. And I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. I know I've always been thinking about my kids and how there may be a lack of financial literacy in their learnings as they get older and you know what's the implications going to be on them and how can I get my kids ready to be financially prepared for this world. So I came across your work and I know that you're an accountant, but now you are also helping parents and kids become more financially literate. How did you make that connection? Yeah, the transition was, it was a longer one. So I did start my career off in accounting, very traditional in one of the big four accounting firms. But I didn't last in that world that long. And I transitioned from there to industry. And I worked actually at Citibank on the trading floor doing derivatives marketing for a while. 
And then I have two kids. They're now in their 20s. But when my kids were young, there was a personal family issue. My father passed away suddenly and I took a break, a leave of absence from my job at Citibank. And I didn't end up going back because there was just too much to, to deal with in terms of his, his estate and winding it up and a whole bunch of complications. So when I finished dealing with that, I was looking for you know, what was going to be my next move. And it was around the 2008 financial crisis, the global financial crisis. And what came out of that was an, uh, an awareness of the importance of financial literacy. So in Canada, where I live, there was a, a task force that that um, determined that it was important uh, for Canadian economic growth and prosperity for the population to be somewhat financially literate. CPA Canada, which is the governing body of accounts in Canada, did research and they found that parents were struggling with this. So one study that they did found that 78% of parents tried to teach their kids about money, but two thirds didn't feel they'd been very successful and more than half didn't even know what information they needed. Based on that research, they decided they wanted to create a book and they approached me to write this book for them. At the time, my kids were preteens and I had never written a book, but um, financial literacy was something that was always important to me and that was important to my own kids. And because I'm an accountant and I had a financial background, I always felt very comfortable having those conversations with them. That's how the, the book came to be the, the first book. And this book, The Wisest Investment, is an update to that original book. And it's the original came out about 11 years ago. So a lot has gone on, has changed in those 11 years. Why did they approach you? Well, I was volunteering for the membership organization on a women's leadership initiative. So they knew me through that, but I had already started doing some work in financial literacy. I had actually cold called the Ontario Securities Commission and wanted to contribute because they had a great website that was just unbiased information for Canadian consumers. And I just wanted to, I was using it with some clients and I wanted to contribute to it. And they ended up building out the tax section of that website and contributing to that. And based on that experience, I started creating financial literacy content. So that's why CPA came to me. They, you know, they knew I had kids, you know, they knew I was experienced and qualified and they could see that I could write articles. But again, I, as I said, I'd never written a book. I never thought about writing a book. In your research or in the research that CPA conducted, did they find that parents that had more financial literacy themselves, they were able to articulate that to their children or they too were not necessarily up to the task? Like, is this a socioeconomic thing or this is just parents don't have time or they never really thought it was important? So the focus groups that we did were with regular Canadian parents. I don't recall there being any financial professionals in those focus groups. But I do think that they feel that financial professionals like accountants are um, a little more comfortable talking about money and teaching kids about money because they have this whole volunteer program where they try to get members to deliver financial literacy workshops in the communities, including one for parents, but there's lots of other topics. And that makes sense to me that just like me, people that have that financial background and that do that for their jobs would probably be a bit more comfortable having those conversations, they would feel more confident in their knowledge because that's one of the challenges a lot of parents feel like they're just, you know, they don't know what to teach or they're not good at good at it themselves. Well, most, you know, accountants are good 
good with finances. Um, whether or not you're a good teacher, whether or not you make the time to teach your kids is a whole other story. Yeah. Do, do you think there's a taboo around talking finance with children? Oh, for sure. Um, there is, you know, money is still considered a taboo topic. And I could ask you, would you rather talk to your kids about sex or money? Would you rather have that the sex talk or the money talk? It's just tends to be uncomfortable or can be uncomfortable depending on what they ask. You know, kids may ask you how much money you make or if you have a mortgage or if you're rich or if you're poor. Like, and again, if you're not doing a good job with this yourself, as a parent, you know, your own financial house isn't in order. I think it, it, you know, there's a bit of shame around that too. So there is still a taboo. And then the more money there is, the harder it can be to talk about. So at either ends, if you're struggling, if you have a lot of money, both of those situations, parents find it hard to discuss the situation with their kids. It's really interesting because you can, when you're around kids, you can see when they start to become aware of material things that are being accumulated or therefore a lack of it, they start to try to understand, are we rich? Are we poor? They want to understand the context that they're growing up in. Part of that then is like, they just think this stuff appears or doesn't appear and trying to teach them. There's a whole process that goes behind how things just show up at the house, whether it's a new car or food. That's interesting, right? Why do you think that schools, like the logical place would be education. Now I know back in the day they did home economics for like yes. the potential, the potential homemakers of the world. And in, in many ways, whilst it was probably biased, at least there was some focus on, you know, home economics. Why do you think there isn't that level of education at school? My mother actually taught home economics there later in her teaching career. <laughs> Funny enough, that's the number one question I get, RJ, from parents is why isn't financial literacy being taught in school? And they're surprised to learn that in Ontario, the province where I live in Canada, it is being being taught in school and it has been since 2012. And what they did here was they integrated it into the curriculums from curriculum from grades four to 12. So it was woven into different classes. But then recently what they've done is more to your point, in the grade 10 careers course, there's a module or section on financial literacy where they ta- tackle age-appropriate topics like budgeting for life after high school or planning for the cost of university or college. Grade 9 math course just got revamped, again, with a focus on financial literacy. It is in the school system. It's across Canada and different provinces are doing different things, but it is being taught. You know, the question is always how comfortable is the teacher with the material and, you know, how much are the kids taking in? And so I I encourage parents to ask their kids what they're learning, if they're learning anything about this in school. Both my kids, one of them in particular, had a teacher who in a very early grade had them do this, what she called like a get a life project. And they, they sort of looked at what you said, like what do things cost and what would it cost to lease a car? And I remember there was a whole bunch of things. They were very young when they were doing this, but it was done at a level that they would understand. And it was really practical. That's actually very interesting because now what you're talking about is behavior augmentation in terms of if kids can start to attribute hard work to the outcome of finance, now you're starting to talk about building work ethic, right? Oh, for sure. In my book, what how I've tried to break it down is I have these five pillars of money and the first one is earn. So first you have to earn money, then you have choices, then you can 
save it or spend it or donate it or invest it. And I do address the issue of work ethic because one of my philosophies for teaching your kids is to be a good role model so that you can, you know, because your kids are watching and listening and learning and, you know, you are modeling behavior for them, whether you're intending to or not. And they do sense what your work ethic is. They can probably sense your attitude towards your work, whether you like it, whether you don't, you know. And during the pandemic, I think when people were locked down, there was even more of an opportunity for kids to see their parents like actually at work, which they probably normally don't unless they happen to work from home before. So yes, I think work ethic is something kids pick up on and parents are modeling. Just anecdotally, and you may not have done any research on this and there may not be any research on this, but just because of your proximity to the subject, like a lot of issues within households come from financial stress, right? Like in conversations around money or a lack of around children. What's your view on that kind of dialogue around kids? Like, is there the right kind of conversations to have and the wrong kind of conversations? We said earlier, money, we don't want money to be a taboo topic, but any issue that comes up in the household that is a parental responsibility, you have to be careful what you expose your kids to because you don't want them taking on the worries of the world. If let's say it's an issue of scarcity, I mean, there are many families where kids do have to work and contribute, many. But I think that those, you know, running the household and the budget for the household is a parental responsibility. And while you can introduce certain topics to your kids. It always has to be in an age-appropriate way. So, you know, preteens, teens, obviously young kids are too young to worry about those responsibilities. As I said, they might be contributing, but ultimately it is the parent's job to balance the budget and to, to put food on the table and, you know, roof over their heads. Obviously, once they become young adults, it's a bit of a different conversation that you can have with your kids when they're that mature or they're setting up their own household. I think we have, as parents, we have to protect our kids from some things, but at the same time, you can't completely shield them from everything. And they are going to pick up on things by osmosis. You know, kids, kids are very observant. And I think they, you know, I give them a lot of credit for what they understand and know about. So you want to, you don't want to be dishonest with them or even dismissive, but you also want to be sensitive that you're not overburdening them. Like you hear the cliche stories from opposite ends of the spectrum. So the child that grew up in a house where dad was never around, worked his ass off. There was this kind of air of scarcity in the house. And a lot of entrepreneurs kind of attribute their success to growing up in that type of environment. Now, that's controversial, right? And then you've got the other end of the spectrum where people might have grown up in generational wealth. And money just appears. So they grow up just thinking it's there, right? And and some of the downside that that creates. But I'm sure there's a middle of the road solution there to kind of ensuring that our kids are exposed to money dialogue age appropriately, but that conversation is still happening, right? Yes, because you don't want to wait till they're <laughs> adults to have that conversation. You don't even want to wait till they're teens. You want to start early uh, when they're young kids and lay the foundation and teach those five pillars of money of earn, save, spend, share, and invest, but at an age-appropriate level. So that's what I've tried to do in the book is there's a chapter for each age group 
there's four different age groups, young kids, preteens, teens, and young adults. And then within each of those five pillars, I get into really specific topics and examples for that age group gives parents some guidelines and a roadmap about what to teach at different ages and stages and what is appropriate. Now, you might have a precocious kid that's going to ask some, you know, pretty good questions. Like my son used to ask my husband when he was little if he had a good quarter because <laughs> my husband has his own business. <laughs> and it was cute. He was little. I don't know where he got that from. Generally speaking, you got to take your cues from your kid too, right? You know them best. There might be something behind the question. Sometimes kids just want to know that everything's okay. So you always want to like honor them by being honest, but that doesn't mean that you have to tell them exactly how much your paycheck is or exactly how much your house is worth or your mortgage. You have to, you know, you can talk about general principles as well. About a week and a half ago, my wife started to think my son was getting just generally a bit stressed out. And she kind of made this comment like, Let's not have any of those kind of conversations at dinner. And I thought that was wise. You know, like she made the connection to maybe some of my stress around some of the changes I'm making and the things I'm doing might be kind of augmenting his behavior. And I think that it was quite wise and relevant. And so, yeah, we made that agreement too. With that, do we, on a more of a societal plane, do you feel that? The importance of financial literacy has changed now versus 50, 30, 20 years ago. Like what what are the implications of kids getting it horribly wrong today? It is a way more sophisticated world that we live in compared to 40, 50 years ago in terms of the products that are out there, whether it's credit products, investment products. And of course, this is all being accelerated by technology and the digital age and all the apps that exist to help spend money, manage money. It's challenging um, just to keep up with all the latest tools and and apps and stuff. But there's also, the, the technology also gives us tools to manage things that didn't exist before. So, you know, there's pros and cons to it. But yeah, I think spending is really frictionless now. If you you combine that with social media, like that's a pretty dangerous combination. Um, We could talk about buy now, pay later apps, BNPL, which originated, I believe in Australia. And now they're here, they're everywhere. Uh, Like there's ads for them everywhere. They really blossomed during the pandemic or exploded. So it's super easy to spend, uh, especially kids who are on social media a lot and they get FOMO fear of missing out and they can see what everyone has and does and live in their best life. And, and then especially if you can do it in four easy installments, it just can get out of control. So yes, I think the consequences, because there's all these new ways to spend, saving is still hard. It's not as frictionless. Um, you can put things in place like automatic transfers to savings or investment accounts. Certainly you can do those things to try and make those things happen easier but it is a much more digital, sophisticated world. So I think the stakes are high, are higher than they maybe were 50 years ago. It just seems like just things have been tough. It's been tough for young people lately, I would say, you know, with, and the pandemic certainly didn't help. So, you know, cause they were already facing like this movement towards temporary gigs, gig economy from full-time jobs with pensions like that, that's gone forever. 
Um, you know, rising tuition costs, rising housing, housing affordability. Now we've got inflation and high interest rates. And so it's a lot. It's been really hard. And I think if you don't get a good handle on your on your personal financial, your knowledge, your skills, and your confidence, which really is what financial literacy is, knowledge, skills, and confidence. If you don't do that when the stakes are low, then you can end up making expensive mistakes when the stakes are higher and they become a little bit harder to dig them, dig yourself out of. And Joe DeSena, a friend of ours at Ultra Habits, he's uh, the founder of Spartan. He does the cookie jar test with his kids every couple of years. Like he does it in various ways where he'll give them the opportunity to consume something now or later. And his experiments based oh. off at Stanford research yeah yeah so yeah he does he's reinvented that and he does it in different various ways without his kids even knowing he's doing it and then he sits there hoping his finger crossing his finger hoping his kid's not going to be the one to take the immediate hit right so let's correlate that to saving just again this will be your opinion but you look at a kid that is starting to save money versus throw money at every single direction and why do you think that kid is able to save? What have they learned? Well, what you're talking about, what they, what you want them to learn or what you're trying to teach them is delayed gratification. And that's what that experiment was all about. And they, you know, they show that the kids that were able to delay gratification by not eating that cookie or marshmallow and waiting and getting the second one, it, it related to better outcomes later in life. Like, not watching TV or playing video games, but studying for your exam um, or, you know, saving for the future rather than spending now. So I think partially it's personality, like hardwired personality, highly conscientious people are able to, I think there's been research about this. They are better at planning and sticking to a plan. So if you're, if you're very high on conscientiousness, that's one of the big five personality factors. If you're low on conscientiousness, it's not as easy to be disciplined. And so you can put in these interventions, like, like as I said, like the automatic savings where an, an amount goes right out of your paycheck into a separate investment account. So, you know, you also want to start to try to form good habits early, saving being a habit. And again, if you do it as an automatic, it takes the self-discipline out of the process. It's, it's almost like your tax withholdings. You don't really think about those. They come off, they go to the government and you learn to live on what's left. That's your net. That's what you, that's what is available. So that's paying yourself first. That's like a, you know, basic personal finance strategy. And if, if you prioritize that and that becomes a habit and you automate it, the, that kind of habit can serve you very well throughout your life. Cause habits are, you know, your whole show's about this. They're well-traveled pathways that create grooves in the mind, neural pathways, right? That rarely disappear. So it's easier to establish good habits early, those grooves, than to try to rewire bad habits later, which is again, why I try to encourage parents to start young, start when your kids are young, age appropriate, just build on that foundation. And you bring up a really interesting point. I've I've, I've had this conversation all the time with people, like a lot of times it's better to place guardrails versus trying to leverage willpower because it's not necessarily efficient. So like creating the automatic savings is a very good example of as an individual having self-knowledge or enough knowledge to know where you're a bit weak in your ability to exert will and then creating the guardrails so you don't have to make that choice. 
in in time, what will start to happen is you'll start to develop that muscle, right? So I think it's about being skillful. I think too many people lie and self-deceive and become lethargic. They'll just watch it happening and they'll be like, I'll do it next time. I'll do it next time. I'll do it next time. Particularly with savings. I'll do it on my next paycheck. I'll do it on my next paycheck. I just got to get this. It's got to get that. Tomorrow never comes. So I want to pivot the conversation, you touched on the buy now, pay later, which I really wanted to talk about. I think that's super, super important. One of the stats he put out, Gen Z, uh, which is 10 to 25-year-olds, have spent 925% more through these services today than they did in January 2020. So that shows increase during the pandemic. And just as you said, the instantaneous loans, the money available, and they make it look really fun and like they're not loan sharks that are going to beat you up if you don't pay. But you know what I mean? Like it's this little cute monkey or bird or whatever. It's such a scam. But anyway, so let's move to your framework, the five pillars. So what are they? Explain. Let's jump into it. So the five pillars are earn save, spend, share, and invest. I just, it seemed to me when I was creating the book that every financial topic really can fall under one of those five. And I feel like, you know, obviously earning, saving, spending gets a lot of attention for kids, investing less so. And a lot of times donating and sharing doesn't really get discussed as much. And there's so many great lessons for kids with that. In the book, each chapter is for a specific age, as I mentioned, and depending on that age, there's content that's age appropriate. And I just found for some age categories, there was like a lot of content, like for example, teens and spend, there's a ton of content. And the investing section is bigger on the you know emerging adults chapter than it is on the young kids chapter. So they're not all equal, but I think I've tried to hit on all the important topics in that framework. So the idea was that if parents were like, not sure what to teach or what to talk about with their kids, they know how old their kids are. So they can just look in the book under that age category and find something. What I try to tell parents is to look for teachable moments, to build a money lesson into your day-to-day lives, your daily activities. You don't have to set aside a specific time to have a money talk. You can find these opportunities. They crop up all the time because we're always transacting. Within the moment when you're at the shop. Yeah. Yeah. Like when they're screaming and yelling because they just want this or that. At the grocery store or in the mall, or even if you're doing stuff online, I find there's always questions. You know, another example I always give is like, if you're doing your own taxes, if you're filing online, you know, using software and you're sitting there, you've got all your slips and you're organizing all your stuff. It's another good teachable moment. Your kids see what you're doing. They might say like, what are you up, what are you up to? And you can explain and explain what, what your income taxes are for, why we pay them. And they might not even know that such a thing exists. What, the, what kinds of services they go towards that your kids know about such a school or the police or the fire department and doctors in Canada. Just there's always opportunities if you get creative, a garage sale, if you're doing a garage sale, yard sale, that's a great example. I even had one family that told me that they use their home renovation as a, a lesson in budgeting. That Again, that was with a teenager. Finding things from your day-to-day lives where you can just take a moment and explain what you're doing. Because what you think is super obvious, and one example I can share is credit cards. So we tap, we use our phone. We Your kids see you doing that, but they don't really totally get it. And I've had so many people tell me that 
when they bought their first credit card, like they used it, but they didn't really know that it was a loan and that they had to pay it within a few weeks and all that stuff. So just sitting down and explaining what a credit card is and how it works, how it's different from your debit card. And now there's all these, you know, prepaid credit cards. There, as, as we said before, it's gotten so sophisticated. So just something that seems so obvious to you is not obvious to a kid or even a teenager. So just take the time to have a little money lesson. Yeah, my five-year-old, when I'll tell him, look, I don't have my wallet, he'll be like, use your phone and like complaining about no TV or like, dude, just use your phone. Like he thinks the phone is like the wand, right? Like it's like Gandalf's wizardry. It is now. I mean, kids, or or if you, if your kid's bugging you for something and you're like, I don't have any money. And they're like, well, just go to the bank machine. Just go to the machine and take it out. So again, making that connection. Well, where does that, how does that money get into the bank? I work, right? Or I have investments. So just, it's like a piggy bank. If nothing comes in, if nothing goes in, nothing can come out. So just try to make it age appropriate and at their level and engaging. Yeah, I'm with you. So let's talk about embedding uh, financial behaviors uh, as, to become habits. And I know you refer to SMART. Like, what are the, some of the ways that we can habituate this process into our kids? Uh, obviously, it being age appropriate. I think saving is one of the biggies, which we touched on. So even at a young age, when they have a piggy bank, like I'll show you, RJ, this piggy bank, which has, it's a multi-slotted. So it has four slots. If people are just listening, um, yeah, one for save, one for spend, one for donate, one for invest. So even at that young age, they can get into the habit of thinking about their money choices. Where'd you get that? called the money savvy pig and the company's money savvy generation i like it i'm gonna give yeah, it one. it's really good in canada there's a store called mastermind that sells it online but amazon should have it there's a link if you go to my website robintobe.com there's a resources page and there's a link to the piggy bank there because it's also a very popular question everyone loves it. so getting into the habit that um money that you earn isn't just all for spending it's for other things too so for for the future, for sharing with others. So getting into some of those habits. You said the SMART goals framework. I think you were you referred to that, right? So delaying gratification um, and setting goals goes together in order to get into the habit of, um, you know, of not spending everything that you make. You want to set goals that are tied to your values, to the things that are most important to you and that you're willing to take a stand for. And then if you connect your your goals through that smart goals framework and you get you know specific and measurable and achievable uh, around that, then those goals become much more motivating and compelling if they're if they're connected back to your values. And you know that is another strategy I have for parents is to to use your values to help guide and prioritize financial decisions and set goals. So it can kind of be like a habit to think about your values. Uh, what is most important to me? Um, is this taking me towards a goal or is this just a distraction that's going to actually get me further away from what's really important to me? Um, so I ha- I created this values validator, which is in the book, but it's also available on my website, which is robintobe.com. So it just helps people um, figure out what their top five values are. If you've never done like a values discovery exercise, it's really interesting to, to discover like what's most important to you? Is it education? Is it, 
adventure? Is it security? Is it health? Just, and then you can use that to help you start to figure out, well, what are my priorities and goals? Fantastic. So I want to really appreciate you for coming on the show. I know a lot of our audience are wondering how the hell to have this conversation as well as the sex conversation with <laughs> their kids. So you've covered the first part for us. So thank you again, Robin. Uh, really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Where can our Ultra Habits people find out more about you and your book? The book uh, is called The Wisest Investment. And I have a website with the same name. The URL is thewisestinvestment.com. And from there, there's a link to Amazon. Hopefully it will take you to Amazon Australia because I know the book has done well there. On that website also, there's a a role model self-assessment. So we touched on the importance of being a good financial role model, getting your own financial house in order so you can lead by example. So I have an assessment there that helps parents figure out like, how am I doing as a role model? Or maybe even becoming aware of, of that, of their behaviors and, and some of their attitudes that they may not have been aware that they were modeling for their kids. And then my other website is robintobe.com, as I mentioned, and that one has the values validator, more information about my speaking and some of the other work that I do. Thank you so much, Robin. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, RJ.